Welcome to Help from Future Self. Hey, what's happening, Archons? Welcome to yet another episode of Help from Future Self, a conversational Keyforge podcast recorded by Keyforge pals right here in Vancouver, British Columbia, sent out across the entire world of Keyforge. My name is Scuzzy Gruen, also known as Alex, and I am joined, as always, by the Keyforge friends. We got the Wheeling Keyforger, Rick. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And Coach Boulevard Paper Fight. What's happening, Blake? Hey, everyone. What's going on? I'm super jealous because last week when I was not able to make it out to our casual night, you guys got to play the Keyforge Cube for a second time or got to run it in any case, uh, in your case, Blake. Uh, I didn't really get to hear about how things went down, but uh, I hear that somebody pulled a pretty spicy deck uh, out of the uh, the draft process. Is that so, Rick? Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't me. Oh, however, okay. however... I played against that deck and it was my only loss for the night. So I think Blake said that he was going to take one of the houses out of the cube. Yeah. This one house basically I made, I ran it last time and it made it to the finals and then um, Tyson ran it this time and he made it to the finals and took it down. So I'm going to see if, if it's a trend that repeats and if it is, I may just swap that house out because it's a little too powerful in that sense. If it keeps showing up in the winning deck, that kind of tells us something. Now, Blake, uh, if folks haven't listened to the episode uh, two episodes ago where we discussed the creation of and the first running of this Keyforge Cube, I understand that you actually put it all down where people can reference it uh, on Archon's Corner. Is that correct? Yeah, my latest Archon's Corner article was about how to how I created this cube and the parameters I set for house drafting uh, in Keyforge. And that way it kind of keeps the algorithm in check. And it gives you a breakdown of how to create your own if you wish to. So I will put a link to that in the show notes because, I mean, it's always fun to get to uh, combine decks and have some united archons. So it's a great way to enjoy the game of Keyforge in a casual format. Yes, indeed. Now, as, as the architect of the cube, was there any observations that you made aside from the previously mentioned uh, a house that you're probably going to take out for balance reasons? Any things that you might think adjust the recipe, if you will? Yeah, I, I made sure to note the the house composition this time when I reconstructed it. And I want to try and make it a little bit more balanced because right now um, there are some houses that are a little bit lighter. And I also reconstructed the packs so that the rare house is also facing the other houses that exist within the deck. And this way it actually prevents you from knowing any of the cards or houses that exist within the deck prior to actually opening it. And it makes it very clear which one is the rare house. So I thought that was a really good update to make this more clear and more kind of hidden in a true like sealed draft. So that's pretty much the update for the cube that I did. I'm so excited for the cube to be just a regular part of our Keyforge diet. Um, we always praise the idea of casual play and different formats because Keyforge shouldn't always be about competition. It shouldn't always be about taking out down tournaments. Oftentimes it's about those community building efforts and it's about uh, having like interesting ways to innovate the game and change the way you think about the game. I think the cube is one of the most interesting ones we've seen so far. So kudos to you for all of your work on, on getting that together, Blake. I'm really excited to see where we go from here on it. Yeah, I'm excited too. All right, uh, we're going to do one of our regular recurring segments coming up right now, and this one is a coach's corner, and it's one that I have to pitch to Blake, our Keyforge coach. That's why we call him that, um, because we have a Keyforge Prime coming up here in Vancouver, and I'm at a bit of a loss here, guys. Um, I've been trying real hard to figure out what deck I want to bring, and I'll tell you what my worry is. 
I know that the smart play for Archon Adaptive is to bring something complicated you can win with, but that an opponent wouldn't be able to figure out and play optimally their first time, even after watching you play it. But the only deck that I feel like is a strong enough candidate is so taxing mentally for me to play that there's the part of me that thinks I should just bring something that I know real well, that I know I can win with, and then hope to beat in the third round with chains. So I'm going to ask you here, Blake, straight up, as my coach, what is your advice for selecting a deck for this event? So I think there's actually three aspects to this. And those three aspects I'll go into, the, the, and they are strength, the reps, and then the fun factor. So strength actually has like many meanings. It can be like amber control, board control, uh, number of creatures you put on board. Uh, are you having artifact control? Is it a deck archetype that you like? Is it a rush deck? You know, some sort of combo deck like a Genka deck or a Fangtooth Cavern, Quixel Stone type of deck. Like all these different archetypes that exist. These are all things that that can be considered a strength factor. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you kind of have to set the parameters for what strength means to you with what you want to achieve. So that's that's the first thing. And, and I think based on Ember control, board control, that sort of thing, those are two that you're going to most likely want to exist um, at, a, at a pretty strong level, no matter what, unless you're a rush deck that kind of doesn't really look at that side of the game. But it is something that has to be thought about and understood within your deck. And sometimes an adaptive, lacking those things can be the thing that actually is your strength that you can be using in that format because people may not recognize right away that it has a low ember control and be looking for these ways to control your ember or know that you have very little and use something too early for just the ember pip when you know you got to hold it because it's it's in a, a sparse a factor for what the deck can use to take people off keys. So those are some of the things that you got to consider when you're looking at the strength side of things. Now, the reps thing is, it's pretty straightforward. I think everyone is familiar with this. It's like the more times you've played a deck, the, the more familiar you are with it, which requires less thinking when you see cards in hand. You're not like, oh, I'm not sure how to play this. You know very well what cards should be played in what order and when they come together. And for a format like that have these long formats and more time, like a triad, or survival, this is definitely something where you're going to like reduce your mental fatigue. Unfortunately, in adaptive, no matter what, you're going to end up having that mental fatigue because you're always going to be playing a deck that you are not familiar with. So as a result, you're going to have these moments where you have to play a deck that you're figuring out as you go. And so if you know your deck really well, it'll just make that process that much easier because you won't have to think when you are using your deck. So that's that's definitely where reps come into play. And everyone knows the rep thing. But I think when you're playing these marathon formats, it's even more important. Just to be able to pilot the deck like uh, in a way that feels totally natural to you, that you don't have to use that, you know, your mental energy on the deck that you're playing, you can concentrate that on your opponent and the deck that they're playing. Exactly. And and, it, and if you're playing, if you're going under the, the guise that you said where you're bringing something that's not as easy to see and more complicated, that means you have to have worked out those complications. So it's second to none when you do it and you know all the different ways that the cards can interact. So you can take not maybe the A and B route, but you can actually take the D to F route that exists within your deck that no one would normally see. It's not that obvious, but you know it's a strength that's more 
down the line of, of what you would optimally look to do, but you can do those things and do it well. Because if you do that, then the main things may be that much less obvious in certain circumstances to your opponent. So when they're piloting the deck, if they're not taking those main routes, that's even better for you. Do you think there's any truth to the idea that unless it's a, a very specific kind of Coda deck, that Coda is too straightforward to compete with the other top tier decks in WC and AOA in an Archon Adaptive format? I feel like you you can say that. And from the prime I went to in Lacey, which was an Adaptive, there was not very many Coda decks. They were definitely the least represented. And I think that could be indicative of that statement. But I mean, th- there are some Coda decks that could be less obvious, but I think there are some that do that. It's, it's more like if you have a house that is not a star, when you get that in your hand, it could look like, oh, this is kind of my dead house. Having one of those, but you understand how it interacts is a way that Coda could shine. But it's very dependent, obviously, like most things in Keyfor- Keyforge to the deck. But yeah, I think that Coda could potentially bring that problem to the table in in some form. As in adaptive... Yes, in the other formats, obviously not. I think codas are almost better in a longer format, sort of something like Triad especially, or Survival, but maybe not so much Survival, but definitely for Triad, because you are playing those really long games, that being able to play quicker and something that's more straightforward may really work to your advantage. Thank you so much, uh, There's Coach. one last I'm left, there's take... one last left. Oh, we, good. Then, this is the most important one, <laughs> too. Scuzzy, come on, man, don't jump the gun on this one. This is the fun factor. <laughs> The fun factor right. is probably the most important thing for this because your enjoyment in playing the deck is the most important thing because if you're going to be putting in these reps, you're going to be putting in long hours at tournaments with it. If you don't enjoy playing that deck, it's just going to feel like works. You want to have something that's fun and does it feel grindy and taxing on you or do you do awesome things with it that happen in the process? Like maybe you like playing a grindy game and that's the player you are, but if you do not enjoy playing the deck, that is a big red flag no matter how good it is when you're playing these really long tournament formats because it's just going to be that much more taxing on you no matter how good the deck is. Like I think something that's like that is much better suited for an Archon. But if you can withstand that grind, then it may be suitable. But I think having fun playing it when you're playing these marathon aspects is is a really, really important factor that can be overlooked. Coach, you're singing my song. I love hearing that, and it's one of those pieces of advice that sounds almost like almost like a cliche, but the way you put it makes it sound like it's so reasonable. Mm-hmm. The more fun you have playing a deck, the easier it's going to be on you as a player on a marathon day of play. Yes. Yep. So good. You gentlemen got to participate in something I wish I'd been able to be there for because it sounds like it was a wild, wild experience. This week at Rain City, they ran sealed, but it wasn't just your run-of-the-mill sealed event. It was flashback Coda sealed, Call of the Archons, every player rocking it in that old-school Keyforge style. It feels a little weird to call it old-school Keyforge style since the game's only been around for, what, uh, slightly over a year and a quarter at this point? Not even a year and a quarter, I don't think, uh, completely. But, uh, yeah, it's changed so much since you know the original run of Coda. Uh, what was it like going back into that sealed environment and revisiting that card pool in a in a way where you knew that you would be going up uh, up against uh, decks using the same cards? I enjoyed it. I didn't really enjoy my deck as much. It was a logo sanctum disc. It seemed good. Um, I think Blake saw my house 
combo, and he said something to the effect of, oh, Rick's probably got another time traveler deck, which I didn't, but I was hoping for one. Yeah, you seem to collect those. Yes, I do. What about yourself, Blake? How did your deck come up? Um, my deck was just absolute trash, like like a fourteen creature coda deck, and it and it had like a sixteen. It was a fifty four SAS deck with only fourteen creatures, and it had a sixteen rating on creature control, which was terrible because two of those cards were bouncing death quarks. So I had two bouncing death quarks with only fourteen creatures. It was just like such such a trash deck. Like I, I actually really did not enjoy playing Keyforge for the first time in a long time because the deck was just so garbage. Like I really it was just not fun for me because I was like, I don't like the things this deck wants to do and it does those things that it should do well poorly anyways. So it was very frustrating. But it the the cool thing was is that I mean we were playing sealed with 10 players so it was four rounds and we were done in two hours which really is a testament to the speed that exists within yeah. coda and the simplicity in piloting the decks and getting to the end fast which we were just kind of talking about within the other long grindier formats so this was like a perfect like kind of way to to look at that because we were all playing it and it was incredible the speed we got through like we started later than we normally do and we finished earlier than we should have so it was pretty impressive so instead of doing four 45 minute rounds we were basically done an hour early wow that's incredible um it's a thing that i've been thinking about a lot lately because i've been revisiting a lot of my my heater decks from the coda era um, especially in light of thinking about the kind of decks that if I were to take them out to a big event, I'd be playing against from AOA and from WC. And I really feel like it's such a different game now than it was a year ago. And the reason yeah. is that Coda was a set that had so much variance. And the reasons for that are multitude, but I think one of the main ones is that it was the first time that the game was out in the wild. And no matter how much playtesting you do, you're never going to really know until you have a mass scale of people playing decks against one another to really understand what the most powerful, most uh, you know dominant deck archetypes are. And so what we saw with Coda, especially for the first several months of the game, was just this shadows dominance and this uh, speed dominance and the idea that you know the best decks are the ones that don't need a board. They aren't interactive. Uh, you don't need to worry about what your opponent does. All you need to do is just speed, 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 get through, get through, get through, get through, get through, and you know hopefully have a little bit of spot removal or amber control just in case you're playing against a deck that's similar to yours or that has a few tricks to slow you down. And I feel like that's completely alien to the way I play Keyforge when I'm playing Worlds Collide and I'm playing, uh, you know, AOA. Those are so much more interactive in so many ways. Did you feel like the games that you were playing were interactive or were they more like, I'm just going to do my own thing over here and see if I can get to three keys without my opponent uh, being able to stop me? I just, I wasn't sure what my deck tried to do. So I was just trying to play hand by hand, basically, which didn't turn out so well. Yeah, I, I kind of, I started actually overthinking it to start with. Like I was, I was doing like trying to do really complicated things and that just is not the case with a lot of Coda stuff. Like you just need to play out the cards in your hand. And in the first game, like I, in, I was against AJ and he dropped a Soul Snatcher and I didn't have a lot of creatures. So like that doesn't benefit me. And I was just like, I, I thought of this like really complex way of dealing with it, which was, um, I had Grasping Vines and I had Save the Pack, but I also had a Positron Bolt and Twin Bolt Emission. So I basically did two turns set up to, to make this really complicated. And I went 
Twin Bolt Emission to damage a bunch, two creatures. And then I went Positron Bolt to damage three creatures. And then I let him go. And then I went back to my turn. I used Grasping Vines to lift the Soul Snatcher and then save the pack. And it was like, it was so complex for like what actually needed to be done. It was actually stupid, but it was, it felt really cool at the time. But then as I got onto late, that was my very first game. Then I got into later stages. I stopped trying to like do stuff like that. And I was just like, what do I have the most in my hand? That's what I'm playing and just cycle and cycle, cycle, cycle. And that's when I started having more success with the deck was just trying to go faster and cycle more. But I mean, I didn't have great success with the deck at all. I just mean success in terms of getting closer to winning, but I only won once because the like, honestly, the deck was absolute trash. Yeah, it's also funny to think about, like, I remember some of the early games that you and I played together, Blake, that we would match up against our, what we were calling our Ricky Bobby decks. I just want to go fast. I just want to go fast. And that was so much the part of the vocabulary of Keyforge at that time. And I don't think rush decks work in the same way now. Like, they just don't. Like, you see a couple of Star Alliance decks that can go real fast based on, like, uh, transporter platform and upgrade tricks. Mm -hmm. But so often now, it is a game that forces interaction because you can't let things go unchecked on the other side of the board or else they're going to take you down or they're going to get there first. And so... Uh, back in that Coda day, it was so easy to find decks that could just do that. And nowadays, you know, even those decks don't match up necessarily to some of the heater decks that we have in Worlds Collide and some of the best of the AOA. So really interesting that you had that experience. I kind of want to do a flashback AOA sealed, if only because AOA sealed was the best way to play, like just middle of the road AOA. Like we all agree... It may be fun, like right before we get into the next set to do something like that. But yeah, I, I, yeah. I hear you. I mean, I, I think that, you know, uh, some of my negativity towards AOA has kind of faded with time. And now I'm feeling a little bit nostalgic, especially for the sealed environment that that set has. So who knows? Maybe someday we'll sit down to do an episode of this podcast where we talk about our flashback AOA sealed experience. I'd love that. Yeah, that'd be cool. Because I have to say, like, you realize that Coda like we talk about how good coda decks are but that's like the top end and there's there's a good amount of top end in great coda but there there is trash in coda like there is a lot and we yeah like a lot of us saw that in seal like a lot of us were like man these decks are not fun to play at all like i don't really enjoy this like we all thought it we, we just have these decks in our mind that we've we've had in our collection that are great but when you actually get back down to just cracking in a sealed environment there is huge disparity like there's some people like i mean marco opened up a fagan restringuntus deck so that was like one end of the spectrum. And then you have like the other end with like me having a Coda deck with only 14 creatures, like, and so much board control that kills my own creatures. Like it's such a weird, like disparity that exists. Like when you think about AOA, they weren't good decks after you look at it in your collection, but they were all like within par of one another to a certain degree. Like there wasn't like a huge outlier that existed. Like every AOA deck could almost always beat another one under cer- uh, certain circumstances. Which I was kind of an interesting thing. Brought out an old AOA deck just to play for funsies this past weekend at a casual game, and I had so much fun with it. And it was mostly just because I was like, oh yeah, AOA had some interesting things going on. I think part of the problem was that we played it for such a long time that it started to feel like very vanilla. Like the, the, it wasn't exciting the way Coda was. But yeah. now I've kind of come to love the dependability of what AOA was. So, you know, like you said, Coda had that variability where sometimes you just got smoked because there was so like 
the best Coda deck and like a middle of the road Coda deck, there's no question. It doesn't matter how good you pilot it. Those best Coda decks have so much amber printed on them. They had so many like cards that were were just incredibly powerful. Things like Control the Week. Why does Control the Week have a pip of amber? That's insane. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, you know, I feel like WC might almost be the best of both worlds in that I feel like there's a lot of consistency in deck quality in WC. Obviously the best WC decks and uh, ones that have really great Saurian houses, really great Star Alliance houses, really great Logos houses are going to beat middle of the road other houses. But lately I just feel like every time I uh, sort of like open up a deck of uh, Worlds Collide, even if it doesn't look immediately great to me, Sometimes I'll find, wait a second, this actually does a really cool thing, and it can actually kind of go in a more casual or semi-casual environment. Like the deck that I opened up and was disappointed in this past weekend. Rick, you may recall me cursing about it. Uh, <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. I ended up playing that one a bunch on the Crucible, and it's a fun deck. It does some neat stuff. It so, does. Yeah. I, I, I will be super curious about where the next set lies, whether it's going to be one of those AOA self-contained experiences where it's great against itself but has its weaknesses or its strengths against other uh, decks in Sealed, uh, whether it can compete with the best of Coda, whether the power creep is going to be real. There's so much for us to find out, and we're going to be finding out so soon because the announcement is coming out today, the day that folks are hearing this, January 30th. I, yeah, I, I actually think that we're, we've we've kind of taken a corner where there's no going back like i think the way worlds collide has established is this is the the movement going forward more complex interactions it's board that acts like cards in your hands so you have to actually utilize your board you can't just play cards out i think those simple days of coda are behind us and i had this conversation with one of our uh, our avid listeners scrowner today and he was he was lamenting the the days of coda past because he doesn't like the worlds collide like really intricate interactions he likes that coda just like play it out and and smack him in the face sort of thing and you know what that that was an interesting side of coda and it's cool that everything is going to be evergreen so people can still enjoy those but i think this intricate board state cards go out of hand and now are on the board and are something on a stick sort of idea is the way the game is moving forward. And I got to say, I love it. I like the more complex interactions. It's something that I've really found to be not only enjoyable, but it creates that as you play more, the discovery is that much greater as you play. And we all know that Keyforge is the game of discovery. Shouts out to the Call of Discovery podcast. Yes. Uh, one of the things I love about that cast is that they always emphasize that Keyforge is a game of discovery. It's about cracking the deck, seeing what it does, discovering new cards, discovering new combinations, discovering new interactions, discovering new ways to play. The reason I love Keyforge is Keyforge feels fresh. Always. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, we cannot ever finish an episode of Help from Future Self without a titular segment. This one's, of course, called Help from Future Self. Self. I got one for us this week, fellas. We were doing a little practice for Archon Adaptive. I was playing against uh, a friend of the podcast, Frank, and uh, he and I were just sort of trying to sort of get a feel, a little more feel for Archon Adaptive, for chain bidding and for other things. And what I realized towards the end of our third game was that I was playing like I did, you know, in any other game of Keyforge, like a best of one game. I wasn't playing to the format. And what it suddenly occurred to me was, no, 
you've already spent 75 minutes of, you know, this 90 minute round playing this way. You need to speed up. You need to be playing faster and making the most of what you can, because the moment that buzzer sounds, it's one more turn. You know, the player that finishes their turn and then the next player gets a turn and then it's over and we go to tiebreakers and we've seen so many games won and lost on what happens in the tiebreaker, especially in these long grindy formats. It behooves you to understand the tempo of the format. You can't just play it like you play a best of one. You have to understand, okay, we're doing two or three. Great. We're doing, you know, elimination. Great. Think about what the format is. Think about what the best tempo to play that format is and then keep your mind on how much time has elapsed and where you need to be in order to win that game as the clock counts down. A good reminder for me. Yeah, that is definitely something you got to keep in mind because there's there's so much, I guess, game management that exists. Like there's sometimes like you need to concede a game sometimes. If you realize that it's really far gone and you know what exists in your deck, sometimes you just got to like take that L to allow the time to go on, especially if it's felt really grindy up until that point and you've eaten up a lot of time. I think the best, my best advice for that is you want to play your very first game, which is your own deck very fast, like as fast as you possibly can. See where you're at with the time and then you're going to have an idea how to proceed with the next two. Yep. Absolutely. You know, uh, Daniel Busto, who won uh, our uh, previous Prime Championship here in Vancouver over at Magic Stronghold, I played him in a round and he conceded the first game because I think, you know, mentally he's a smart player and he said, I want to have as much time as possible in the second and hopefully third games. And he ended up taking down the entire tournament after, you know, beating myself and a bunch of other great players. Not that I'm saying I'm a great player, but you, you get what I'm getting at. Yeah. So always a smart play to do that management and to know when to fold them so that you can live to fight for another round at an optimal capacity. And that also works in Triad Sealed, which we had, because then you're seeing less of the deck that he's going to be playing again against you. So you don't know some of the things that could be coming. Whereas if you play a full game and he could cycle through his whole deck, you know it exists and you know what you're looking out for, which may not be the case at that point. Always thinking about the angles. That's why we call him Coach. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Help from Future Self. You can, of course, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash HFFS podcast. You can find us on Twitter at the very same address at HFFS podcast. You find me at Scuzzy Gruen on The Crucible, on Twitter, and on Instagram. Where can they find you, Blake? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Boulevard Paper Fight. That's BLVD Paper Fight, and also on my YouTube, as well as on The Crucible under that name. And you can occasionally find me on Archon's Corner writing articles. That's archonscorner.com. Where can they find you, Rick? On The Crucible, Rickster78, and on Twitter at The Wheeling Keyforger. All right, that's it for yet another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, until we speak to you again, stay forging. Stay forging.